Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where my guest reveals the five things from their life that, given the chance, they would like to have preserved in a time capsule. And we do give them that chance. They can pick four things that they really cherish, no matter how insignificant it may seem to other people, but they also have to pick something to put in the time capsule from their life that they wish they could forget. And then we talk about those things and find out where it leads us. Amazingly, this is episode 250 of my time capsule. Yes, fireworks, explosions, the 1812 overture, etc. So it's a bit of a milestone. Fortunately, we have a guest worthy of such a milestone. The actor and writer, Sir Tony Robinson. Famous for presenting Time Team and a whole array of other programmes, for his brilliant award-winning children's TV series, Made Marion, and for playing one of the greatest comic characters ever created, Baldrick in The Wonderful Blackadder. Tony has also written 16 children's books and has recorded abridged versions of all of Sir Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. That's quite a task. He's been Vice President of the Actors' Union Equity, was on the National Executive Committee of the Labour Party and is a patron of the charity Alive, promoting stimulating activities to help improve the quality of life of people in care. Tony was knighted in 2013 for public and political service. And now, via the wonder of Zoom, he's going to reveal the five things he put in a time capsule, and maybe a few other things. Here is the national treasure, Tony Robinson. My daughter's 40. Yeah, my daughter's 45 now. (laughs) What a crazy world. How does that happen? I don't know. I, I don't know. I, let's just hope there's a, quite a sizable chunk more left. Well, that would be nice. Yes. But then, no, you're blessed. You're blessed now because I saw you on the telly last night sitting next to oh. Greta Thunberg, the hero of everybody in the world, I hope. Not of everybody in the world. I instant a photo of me and her 
after the show. Yeah. Some people have a venomous hatred of her that quite takes my breath away. Astonishing. I mean, an intelligent, delightful, thoughtful, incredibly caring young woman. Yeah, yeah. And very, if I say simple, that sounds like it's a put down, but it's not meant to be. She is. She says there's a very, there's something very simple about her. Mm. Which is pleasing. It's direct. She says what she believes. And more and more, of course, the evidence is irrefutable, I think. Yeah, the book is sensational. It is just, it outlines the case bit by bit, going from one very intelligent person to another. It's a, it's a great toilet book, actually. <laughs> so anyway, your agent said, oh, I'm so sorry to make you having to wait. I said, no, it's fine. As Tony will remember, I have lots of experience of that, sitting waiting for Jimmy Mulville to turn up for rehearsals. <laughs> or, or whole days waiting for Rory to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> actually, before we talk about the things that you're going to put into a time capsule, I wanted to talk to you about your brilliant television show that you've just started. When did that start, The History of Us? I was approached as a hired gun, as it were. A lot of the shows that I do, I either take to a television channel or an independent company comes to me and we kind of work on them together and build it up and get the money to do it and off it goes. And and often I'm called an executive producer on it, which just means you keep an eye on it and have a look at the edit. Mm. This one wasn't like that at all. They just wanted somebody to do this new show. And I saw the proposal and just thought it was fantastic. It was such an economic idea. It was one of those one-sentence ideas. It's quite a long sentence, but basically in a different town every week, I would ask the people there if they wanted to find out more about their own history. And we would work with them, discovering it over the course of the week and also discovering things that they got, like things in their drawers that they prized, things they dug up in the back garden. And we would also be working with the local museum. And at the end of the week, we would all create a pop-up museum, which was the story of that street, which would last for 24 hours and everyone could go in and see it. It's a lovely idea from the idea of of community, I think. All those people in that street may not know about other people in the street, but suddenly you put this thing up and everybody goes, oh, my God, that's your granddad, is it? Or this happened in your house. It's a lovely way of bringing people together, I think. And in fact, virtually we did four episodes, uh, Aberystwyth, Norwich, one in Bristol and one in Birmingham. And I thought that there would be a variety of how much people knew about each other in those streets. But in all four of those streets, hardly anybody knew anybody else. (laughs) I think maybe that's just the way the world's drifting. Yeah. And they loved coming together to make this thing. And at the end of the week, in all four places, when we would got the museum up and running and everyone was coming to see it and having a blast about these new friends they'd met, they all said, oh, I wish we could do this every week. Oh, why don't we carry on with this museum forever and ever? And we've made some great new friends. It was lovely that just everybody said that. It was really good. Maybe it's a lesson for all of us that actually we should take more notice of the people living around us. I mean, I've got a man lives over the road from me, very frail now and quite old, but he's a master builder. He's a master bricklayer. He built his own house. And when he points out to you the things he's done in his house, it's extraordinary. You look at the different bricklaying techniques he did just for the practice. It's extraordinary. And he's lived the most amazing life. He's lived in this street. I've lived here for 30-odd years, and he's lived here all his life. Yeah, I think 
sometimes at our worst, we can all be a bit snobbish about other people in the street, can't we? Mm. We say to our partner, oh, is, is he wearing that stupid jacket again? <laughs> uh, why is he always hanging around? Yes, with me usually, it's how on earth does he afford that Porsche? Yeah, but actually everybody really has a story to tell about something to do with their life. And, and I'm just beginning to learn in the autumn of my years to try to honour that more. And yeah. So it was a joy for me to do this programme, knowing that, Whoever I talk to, if I press them sufficiently, they would be happy to talk about something which was really interesting, which had to do with their lives. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. You never know people until you actually give them a chance to tell you something. If you only ever talk about what you're doing in that moment, most people lead very sort of dull lives. We all do. We all just yeah. go and do the shopping. But actually, if you delve back into people's lives, in a way, that's what this podcast is. It's an attempt to find those things in people's lives that they wouldn't talk about normally or in fact quite often think about i often think when i'm round at my grandchildren's house you know that classic phrase that parents ask children which is so stupid because you're never going to get a decent answer which is how was school today yeah well they don't say anything do they they just do that that gesture that shrug of the shoulders and that like, little face that said why are you asking me this and Part of it might be just because they're feeling exhausted and lazy at the end of the day. But I think also it's about the fact that they live very intense lives and very emotional lives and don't really want to kind of regurgitate that stuff, especially in front of their parents or their grandparents. And I think most of us have lived lives which are really terribly intense and parts of them it's not so much that we don't want to discuss them, but they've, they've, they've just been put in a box or put in a little cupboard in our minds somewhere because that happened, but I don't really want to unpack it. But then when you do talk to people, actually they realise, oh, I can open that door. Yeah, I can open it up and I can talk all about it, about the, the, the dreadful time that I had with my mum. Mm. You know, that's uh, the pain's eased there. It does. It is difficult. I mean, it's very much up to people what they talk about on this. I'm not saying tell me the most momentous thing that's ever happened in your life, but just something seemingly insignificant that when you think about it, it takes you to a place that you liked being in. Yeah. Although uh, being a bloke, I tend not to have the emotion at the time the thing's happening. I never know how I'm feeling about something. Then about two or three weeks later, it'll crawl up on me, creep up on me like a cold. I'll think, oh, I really enjoyed that. Oh, I was really upset about that. Mm. Hey, that really hacked me off. Oh, I'm so in love with her. One of those things. But I don't really know it at the time. No, that is a male characteristic, isn't it? Yeah. Sort of in a way ignoring your emotions while they're happening. Yeah. Certainly when you look back on them. I've done this podcast. Richard Herring interviewed me and I thought I'll be fine. And then I suddenly started talking about, well, you remember Jeffrey Perkins. Of course. But I started talking about him and it absolutely overwhelmed me. And uh, I didn't expect it to happen at all. That's, that's sweet. That's sweet. Mm. He would have been giggling in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> he would have been pouring himself another glass of red wine, yes. I was told earlier on today by my Pilates teacher that there is a new book out for kids. I can't quite remember the title of it. It's, it's about how you feel when people leave the room. And it's, it's just about emotions. It's a book about getting kids to realise 
A, that they have emotions, and B, that it's fine for them to have those emotions. Yeah. And probably that book ought to be republished just for men. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. Anyway, let's move into the ideas of uh, things that you'd like to put into a time capsule and see what you come up with, Tony. I think the thing that I would most like to put into a time capsule, like a really thingy thing, is my jukebox. I'm from that era, I remember so clearly going down to the Bamboo Coffee Bar in George Lane, South Woodford, when I was about 14 or 15. And there was a jukebox there, and it was just when the Shangri-Las and all of those great American Harmony girl groups were coming onto the scene, and I would drink one frothy coffee, as we called it in those days, <laughs> while I listened to as many of those three-minute, exquisite three-minute singles that I, I could. And ever since then, the idea of the jukebox uh, and the elegance of the jukebox has always been vivid to me. I remember going into Harrods maybe about 20 years ago. I don't know why. It's not a shop I would shop at. And there was this exquisite reproduction Wurlitzer. And I just thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. And it was something like full brand, which is a lot of money now, but in those days it was just an unspeakably large amount of money. So I said, oh, have you got a leaflet to go with it? And, and I took the leaflet and I saw that it had been made by a company just outside Leeds. And I held on to this. And next time I went up to that area, I gave them a bell and said, can I come over and have a, a look at your Wurlitzer? And it turned out they were made by guys who had been in the car industry but had been made redundant. Mm. And they wanted to use their skills to make money but also to make things that they really loved. And so the whole of this little warehouse was full of, like, those machines at the fair, things like that ball thing that you punch and you can guess your weight and all those kind of things. Things out of childhood, as memories out of childhood. And they'd got these Wurlitzers. And I was able to buy it for half the price. And in addition to that, they converted it to CDs. And so in it, I was able, they gave me loads of CDs, but it filled three quarters of the, of the rack. And of course, when it's CDs, that means you've got something like 13 times as many tunes to listen to than you would have been able to original Wurlitzer. So I bought one and I've got it in my uh, my sitting room. And gradually, of course, the music has changed over the years, but I've still got some of those, those first ones, certainly got the Ronettes in there still. And there is something about the exquisiteness of it as uh, a, uh, well, it's a work of art, really, those things, aren't they? Mm. Uh, and the great music and the memories of that music and the sound of them coming out of a Bang & Olufsen set of speakers that is really important to me yes you've got one source of the sound haven't you and it's a great booming sound isn't it it is it's booming but it's not unclear i think maybe it's something to do with the, with those the, the metal that it's surrounded in. but it's quite there's a there's still quite a crispness about it but i agree with you it is quite boomy mm. no i like it uh, so what's the number combination the letter number combination you'd go to automatically Oh um, well, <coughs> to be honest, it's got a it's got a thing that you can press, which is like random, like a shuffle, and I love that because if you deliberately try and reconjure an emotion with a piece of music, by and large, I find it doesn't quite work. <laughs> 
But uh, if you're surprised by it, then everything comes flooding back. Having said that, um, there is one album which is the old, I can't remember what it was actually called, but it was like, it was the first Dusty Springfield album. Uh. And every one of those songs is an absolute winner. And I think that's something like... C101, C103, something like that. Ah, right, okay. We know what to press if we come round your house then. What a great singer she was, Dusty. What a, yeah, amazing. And I think we didn't know at the time. I think it, was, it wasn't until a lot of gay guys came out and celebrated Dusty in a way that we never had that we realised quite the quality of, of, of the woman that we had. She was just, uh, what, was the, what was the band? What's her name? The Seekers. Seekers! And then they did the new Seekers, didn't they? I'd like to teach the world to sing. Yeah. And we all said, no, please don't. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Well, we were talking earlier about emotions and how I'm of that generation that really doesn't know what they're feeling at the time. Something similar is true, I think, about a lot of pop records, that you hear them and you kind of quite like them, or maybe you don't even notice them. And then about two or three months later, you suddenly think to yourself, wow, this is incredibly good. And then you hear it again, you know, something by the, one of those early Beach Boys ones, for instance, you hear it again, and you think that production is sublime. And those lyrics are absolutely exquisite. And it was just a pop song when I first heard it. What, what, what's happened to it? How has it suddenly got quite so brilliant? Yes. The song that struck me of theirs that is like that is, um, I may not always love you as long as there are stars above you. It's an astonishing song. Yeah. The world would mean nothing to me. So what good would living do me? Something like that. Mm, brilliant. Well, we will definitely take the world, it's so then, Tony, and we'll put it into the time capsule as the first item. That's lovely. Yes, I will, please, yeah. Okay, great. All right, uh, let's move on to item number two. I don't know whether it's something to do with getting older about the way your mind works, but yesterday, the router, do you say router or router for that thing that makes you... I say router, yeah. All right, I never quite know. Anyway, the router went wrong, And I couldn't get my iPhone or my iPad to work. And I was fiddling around with them and putting one on top of the other for some reason and trying to get them to work. And what flashback was the toy box that I had in my childhood Mm. and how I used to play with things in exactly the same way. That was the word phenomenological. You know, you pick something up and you hold it one way and hold it another and you poke it and you stroke it and you rub it against your cheek or whatever. Play was very tactile. And even though you got the the same things out of your cupboard about 90 times, there was still something of a surprise when you took the first few off and saw the thing underneath. I don't think I would actually put my mobile in uh, my time capsule, but I would probably take the thought that my the man round the corner who was good at carpentry made for my mum and dad to give me one Christmas when I was about seven or eight. Oh, brilliant. I can remember so vividly now, next to me, there's one of those old big radiograms with the radio in it, with those little, you, you would turn the little knob round and there would be a tiny little block and if you turned the, the, the needle round to that, you ought to be able to get Radio Luxembourg and you ought to be able to get a light programme over there and sometimes you had to wiggle and wiggle and wiggle it. So that would be going on and it would be glowing in a cosy way. And I would have all my nights out and I would be 
playing around with the knights in my castle. Mm. So vivid, that memory. And it was one of the things that, uh, about history for me that uh, always that place that I could be on my own. In fact, my mum took me to an ear specialist when I was about eight or nine because she thought I was deaf. And I wasn't deaf at all. I was just concentrating on something else when she was speaking. Yes, I'm interested. I'm, I'm interested in this. I'm not interested in what you're saying. But no, yes. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even meant as a rejection. I'm just so interested in what was going on that I can't really hear her. It's great seeing children play like that, though, isn't it? It's, you must see it with your own grandchildren, yeah. where they're, they're so deeply involved in something. And that may be, you know, a tablet. They may be playing with something on a screen. I don't really object to that. I think if they're fascinated with it and they're in the game, it's the same sort of imagination. They're actually travelling that journey with Sonic the Hedgehog or whatever. Yeah. And I think to develop that rather ruthless imagination where the shutters come right down is a great tool to have in later life. It can be deeply antisocial. But on the other hand, it is all mayhem going, and you've got to stay in that studio, but you know you're not going to be on for the next 20 minutes, and you actually have the ability to sit down and think about a particular piece of writing that you want to do or a gag that you want to write, and those shutters are down so much that you don't hear any of the mayhem or the demands which might be occasionally thrown on you. You just get on with it. I think that's a real survival technique for people who work in the kind of industry you and I do. Mm. I first remember seeing John Lloyd do that. As a student, I was given television experience by John by coming down and doing some extra work on Not the Nine O'Clock News. And I sat by him in the studio and all around him was mayhem. And he just sat there and was writing gags for the newsreaders section. Yeah, probably most of us have that ability. It's something that we learned in childhood. Yeah, but that fascination you've got with history, that's gone right through your work, hasn't it? I mean, even when you think about it, comically, back to the brilliant Maid Marian. Yeah, um, I, it certainly wasn't conscious. Uh, and so certainly when I went into Blackadder, I found that everybody who was associated with Blackadder had exactly the same feeling about it. It's always a place I'd love to be. Um, when I was very young, my mum and dad, I think, probably about 28 or 29 when uh, they had me. And the previous year, they just left the forces. The, uh, you know, the war ended in 45, I was born in 46. So the, the war was buzzing through their heads. Neither of them left the British Isles during the war. They were both, my dad was in the RAF, my, my mum was in the WAF. Mm. So as working-class kids, they met people they wouldn't have met in any other way, uh, the sorts of adventures that they had, like, you know, learning how to fire a machine gun kind of thing, were absolutely terrific. My dad trained himself to be a boogie pianist because the Canadian forces uh, were up in Scot East Scotland where he was stationed for a lots and lots of them. They had a boogie band. They needed a new pianist. My dad vaguely knew his way around the piano, but really not much, and he said, I'll do that. Like actors always do, don't they? I'll do that. <laughs> and uh, taught himself how to play boogie piano at gigs. So he spent the whole of the war going to little church halls and community centres throughout Scotland, playing boogie and getting off with girls. So he had all these stories that he wanted to tell me, which was so vivid. And my mum was doing amateur dramatics in the aerodrome in Reading, um, and she'd got all her stories. And so... 
there was this constant welter of the past. It was only the past of about three years previously, but it seemed to me the most profound past imaginable, yeah. which I was engaged in, listening to my parents. And the stories were great, so I'd hear them time and time again. And it was only when I got to about the age of 10 that I realised that what they were telling me was history, that I knew just as I knew how to breathe, I knew that I was living in a kind of continuum of history, that before me there were other people like my mum and dad and they had a good time and adventures and laughs and by extension there must have been my great, 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 great grandparents doing the same thing and people before them and who wouldn't want to know about that? It's just like the most amazing thing in the world Mm. and so accessible as well. So to find out that there was actually a subject called history that I could do, I can remember thinking, well, everybody would want to do that anyway. You wouldn't <laughs> need it to be taught at school. And then, of course, I discovered that lots of people found history really boring. But, uh, yeah, it was. it's always just been in me, in my blood, from, because of my parents. Yeah, it's strange. I can't imagine finding history boring. I mean, even I loved your programme where you walked through history. Yes. It was just a really simple but joyous programme. And, again, it was that example of finding things in what seem to be areas that are not fruitful. You're just walking down a country lane, and it's full of detail. Um, my great friend, uh, Professor McAston, who was the guy with the spiky jumpers on time team, who's now dead, sadly, mm. he used to say to me, always look up. And I just thought it was just, <laughs> you don't need to, if you're interested in history, that's what you need, need to be told, really, always look up. If you think, like, when you're in a town, all you see is planet chicken, the shop or whatever, <laughs> and the dry cleaners. If you just look up, you can see the architecture above it. And the architecture, it's particularly in those old shopping places, is fascinating. Mm. And often most of those buildings weren't built at the same time. So you've got what you might call a palimpsest of the last kind of 200 years in, in, in the architecture. And how many times when you look up, do you get the pleasure of seeing an old shop advertisement painted on a wall, but now it's faded and, and, and you can hardly make out what it's for. What's extraordinary about those things is the certainty of it. That's what I love about it, that in any period... When people do those things, they're very certain about what they're doing. In Tunbridge Wells, where I live, there's a sort of new shopping centre, but it's got parts of old shops built into the facade. And one of the old shops is a huge 1930s front, and carved into the brick is Burton's menswear. (laughs) It's what you need to see, isn't it? Yeah, and I love the fact that they had the confidence to go, we're going to put this in brick because we're here to stay. I mean, they're not. They're gone. But I love the fact that at the time, that's how they felt. I do love the way that architects now tend to honour the world that was there before the new building that they're about to design and create existed now in the old days you just flatten everything wouldn't you and then yep. put up the new thing but now as you say more and more echoes of the past are incorporated in into the new and i think that's great yes a lot of old buildings and a lot of old odd brick corners that are still around in various towns but they're just kind of there on their own and although they're absolutely listed they're kind of fading because no one really knows what they are whereas if you actually incorporated them into a new building they would stay there for as long as that 
new building stayed there. Mm. Uh, Mick Aston always said, I really don't mind if there is a, a bit of Roman wall and they build a McDonald's around it, as long as they respect that bit of wall that they've incorporated into uh, their new building. As, which is, was the most outrageous thing for uh, an archaeologist to say to other archaeologists 20 years ago. But I absolutely understood what he meant. Yeah, no, he's completely right. Otherwise, in fact, if things are put in aspic, I think, they can become completely pointless. I'm quite keen on the idea, I've seen a couple of them around London, where they actually put a sign on the building, not saying who'd lived there, but saying what the building was. That's a good idea, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Very good idea. You know, you know, you were saying about how there's a great certainty about seeing yeah. those old things from the past. And that was what I enjoyed so much about doing Time Team. It wasn't really so much about the, the, the complex archaeology, but often you would find the mark of someone from five or six hundred years ago on a piece of wood. Like if you've got a joint from a roof say, of an old timber building, then probably what the joiner would do would be he'd put a little squiggle on each part of the joint. So when he cut them, if they did get put on different piles, you could identify which were the two that went together because they both had the same squiggle on it. And it's like a little, it was like a little autograph of some bloke 600 years ago that I was privy to. Mm. Uh, I can remember the old Coventry Cathedral where that been all smashed to pieces during Henry VIII's reign. The front of it was so covered in complex whirls and whirls and whirls of this, this old piece of column that was we got up out of the ground. But, of course, only three faces, or no, only two faces were complex. The other two were flat where it would slot in to the rest of the pillar. But the mason had squiggled on, the, on one of those flat sides He'd squiggled the shape of what it was that he wanted to carve on the complex side. In other words, I think what he'd done was that he'd said to his junior mason, who was probably about 13, look, I want you to, I want you to rough this out while I'm away, having my bacon sandwich. This is what I want you to do. Squiggle, squiggle, squiggle. Now do that on the front face. And just to see that man's work. Yeah, I, I've always found intensely pleasurable, and that there is something so definite about that. And yet, and yet, and yet, when you look at the documents of history, they're not like that at all. They're never that definite. They pretend to be definite, but if you think about virtually every historical document that you've ever seen, it's written by someone who's trying to flog something, yeah, or trying to impress someone or trying to convince you that their religion is better than someone else's. Mm -hmm. Yes, my side really did win that battle. Or they're doing a complete PR job and saying, my queen on such and such a day did this wonderful thing. Or, or Walter Raleigh took his cloak off and layeth it over this puddle <laughs> so that Queen Elizabeth could walk over it and wouldn't get her feet wet, which was probably complete bollocks <laughs> and we tend to rely on it as something that is absolutely right and it's not it's contingent it's it's blurry um, and it changes as we become interested in different things mm. so that for instance in the last few years in a period that I'm fascinated about, the Anglo-Saxon times, the Dark Ages, people have started saying, why did the Dark Ages only happen to men? <laughs> and, 
why are no women recorded in the Dark Ages? But when you scrutinise the documents, you find there are loads of women around in Anglo-Saxon times, and many of them are in very powerful positions. But you've really got to look at those documents to see that. In other words, you've got to read the stuff in a different way. Mm. One of the things that I'm going on an awful lot. I'm sorry, I'm just very interested in no, this. No, it's I'm right. Sure. I'm very interested in it. I mean, I, 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 it makes me wonder how much, though, of the of the false news that we get nowadays will survive as the actual news and how much the, the reality will disappear. Hopefully there will be people called historians for as long as there are people in the world who will constantly challenge that writing and will look at comparable documents and what else was going on at that time and will be able to work out that that wasn't the truth, which is why, which is why I think the whole debate around black people in history is so interesting. There has been such outrage, hasn't there, about getting rid of the narrative about slavers and trying to integrate more of the narrative about slaves into history and trying to take away that ghastly word slave. And there's been an outrage, isn't it? It's as though it's as though this new understanding of the role of black people in our history is offensive, as though it's a fad, as though it's the destruction of real history, which is the history that we knew before. And it's nonsense. Mm. It's actually what's always happened in history, that history has been rethought. People have always rewritten history because your understanding changes. Yeah. I got this from Michael Gove about 15 years ago when he said, I don't think you should be teaching Blackadder in schools. And he was Minister of Education. Now, I think that really, if you've got the right teacher, virtually anything can be taught in schools if it is a teaching aid to bring the child's imagination to life. And the great thing about Blackadder was, as you know, it was written by two people, uh, Ben Elton and Richard Curtis, who were passionate about history, passionate about getting things right, but wanted to do it in a comic way. And of course, things were exaggerated. And if it goes into schools, hopefully children will engage with what they see and the teachers will be able to explain to them what, as it were, was part of the lived reality of those soldiers at the time and what is something that is hyperinflated for comic reasons. But for him to think that there were some things which were history, which ought to be allowed and other things that weren't. It's absolute nonsense. Mm. You might have say you can't teach the First World War poets uh, if you're teaching First World War history to children because then they'll believe that the whole of the First World War rhymed. <laughs> yep. I've stopped talking now. I'm happy to listen. <laughs> uh, and also, just to warn you, I am aware that uh, sometimes this happens on Zoom, that if I talk, it's sort of in a way cutting you off. So I'm deliberately staying very quiet tone. I would normally be making a bit more noise. Uh, it has a strange thing where sometimes it'll see me as dominant. And therefore, every time I talk, it dips your sound. I'm sure you know that I'm not normally this quiet. My memories, my history with you of 40 years ago is that we were surrounded by highly competitive, very noisy young men. Yeah. And you tended not to compete just because I think that's sort of the kind of guy you were. I tended not to compete because I only had four O-levels and so didn't want to be part of that competition. So you and I would have much quieter conversations. Yeah. So what's coming across 
to me now is the you I remember rather than the fact that you're deliberately keeping quiet. Uh, no, maybe it's a skill that I had. I never noticed that I had. But you really do hear much more if you let people finish what they want to say. Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that I was so dismally unsuccessful in courting women was I thought I had to do all the talking. I thought I thought they would be so interested in me. <laughs> yep. I think you're fought when you go back to that. I'm going to think of it as, well, we have our dear mutual friend who worked with you on Maid Marian, uh, Ramsey Gilderdale. And uh, I like to think of him sitting in his bath in the middle of that fort. Yes, I, yes, I would like to see him there. I don't see him en- enough. He lives in somewhere like Sicily now. He does, he? yeah. For those people who don't remember him, he was in Blackadder's Christmas Carol and played the idiotic, giggly son of somebody. And I loved his performance so much that uh, I got him to be in uh, Maid Marian and uh, Merry Men. Mm. Uh, and he said, so he was in sort of two or three series. But... He can do that giggling idiot brilliantly, can't he? Yes. Yes. OK, I'm going to put your thought in. Right, I hope you're having fun. I'm afraid, as is the way on podcasts, we're going to take a short ad break. We'll be back with more from Tony Robinson very soon. See you in a minute. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back. Okay, let's get back to Tony Robinson and find out what else he'd like to put in his time capsule. I want to put in the table that my phone is resting on while I'm talking to you. Mm. It is a small dining table. It only has room for two chairs on each side, and it's got those flaps that you pull out. And it was made in, I think, 1937, for my mum and dad, when the wedding presents would be the furniture for wherever you were going to live, if you weren't going to live with your mum and dad. Mm -hmm. And I've had it kind of sitting around and my 
uh, my mother-in-law had it and then when that relationship founded eventually she gave it back and another mother-in-law had it and then it was in store for ages and I've brought it back to life and it's shiny it's got it's made in walnut and it's it's lovely and I've put new things to sit your bum on what do you call you know a bit of the chair so it looks kind of it looks a little bit cutting edge but still it looks out of the 1930s but it epitomizes it was the table that I did all my homework on most important of all it was the table under which I sat when my mum and dad got their first black and white telly for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. Mm. Um, you remember those old black and white tellies that were really kind of chunky and had to be stood on, mm. on a little table. I remember seeing the, the coronation. I was 50, 52, was it, or 51? I can't remember. But anyway, I, so I was only about six years old at the time. And I'd got one of those tiny little coaches and horses made out of some fairly cheap metal that, that you could put along because it was the coach that Queen Elizabeth was going to go to the coronation in. And I remember sitting under this table when I watched Quatermass on the pit and it made me feel sick to watch it and I couldn't not watch it. <laughs> and I think probably that was more than anything was what made me so fascinated by television drama. Television drama to me was the world. The play for today, the early Z cars, they opened up more to me, I think, than, than anything else. I should have learned more from nature. I was living right adjacent to Epping Forest, but that was just a bunch of trees as far as I was concerned. But, but Quatermass and the Pit was the world for me. Mm. They're very strange, those televisions as well, aren't they? They were sort of deeper than they were wider. The screen was smaller than the depth of the television. And, and they were so heavy, mm. weren't they? My parents' first television had a magnifying glass on the front, an additional screen on the front that, that actually just magnified the picture. What it did really was it, it distorted it. They looked like the kind of glasses that really short-sighted people <laughs> have in those days. <laughs> yes, so that's an extraordinary memory to have, to be under the table watching the coronation. It went on for hours, didn't it, of course? It did, yes. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, it, the um, the funeral went on for hours. The recent funeral went on for hours. Didn't it? Mm. I wasn't, I didn't think I'd be particularly interested in it at all. But the more I looked at it, the more I realised, just going back to this idea of history, and indeed, indeed history as propaganda, was that this extraordinarily beautifully orchestrated event, ritual event, exquisitely well shot by the BBC. I thought it was, I thought it was BBC and it's very best. Yeah. It's actually a piece of propaganda about the continuity of our royal family and how important it is to the stability of the nation, monarchists would argue, that the baton should be immediately passed from one to the next. I don't know if you remember the announcement that the Queen was dead. Uh, it, was, it, it was a sentence like, the Queen is dead, long live the King. It was a sentence that had her death in it and the next king was going to be Charles, just in that one sentence, so that everyone would know straight mm. away. And so much, so much of that ritual, which is a relatively new ritual, really, the funeral and the coronation. I think most of it was invented in the uh, uh, early 20th century after Queen Victoria, um, is about that kind of stability and the kind of meaning that it has to all of us now. It's a relatively contemporary created meaning 
rather than one that's sort of risen organically out of the uh, the echoes of time. Yes, I, I think that the whole coronation would have been the establishment of the power of the monarchy over the aristocracy, wouldn't it, originally? Absolutely. That's why they were, that's why they were all there, mm. wasn't it? You've got to come and watch this. Yeah. I'm not a great monarchist. I mean, I think it's far enough away from the Queen's funeral to state that. I've never been a monarchist, but I thought that it was very moving at moments. Oh, it was exquisitely moving. And and, and if I if, if what I'm saying might sound a criticism, it's more a criticism of not so much a criticism. It's a, it's an assertion that an awful lot of history is constructed, and we shouldn't just necessarily look at it in the way that it's presented to us. Uh, particularly that thing of people talking about tradition. This is a tradition. We've always done this. And you go, well, we haven't really. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about Charles, actually. Uh, you know that uh, we heard that the Prime Minister had told the King that he couldn't go to this big international meeting uh, about the environment. We hosted the last one. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's really important because it's about the fact that we're not fulfilling the criteria that everybody agreed to last time around. And I was thinking, for most of his life, Charles has been completely rubbished, uh, rather in the way that you said earlier on. I'm not, I've never been sort of terribly keen on the royal family. There's an awful lot of people who have been never terribly keen on Charles. And uh, I've portrayed him as a nitwit. And yet it's turned out he was right and we were wrong. Completely. Yes. It must be really difficult for him, I think, because there's an example of you can't say certain things as king, whereas you could say them as Prince Charles. You can't say them. And clearly the idea that he would throw a reception for all the people the night before we stopped being the president of COP26 till it became COP27, he threw a reception at Buckingham Palace for everybody who was going but he couldn't go himself. It's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely and a crazy. political decision. That's the terrible thing about yeah. it. In a way, I can understand why, because the state doesn't want the monarch to be embroiled in history as they were in the time of King Charles, the first and second King Charles. They, they want them out of it. Mm. It would be great if he can find a way to assert himself, because he, he is clearly a very thoughtful person uh, and there's an awful lot of stuff that he gets that a lot of the state doesn't really get yeah one of the great pluses of queen elizabeth was that in many ways she was so quiet and didn't want to voice an opinion about anything and that that had enormous advantages mm. but on the other hand maybe that isn't quite as appropriate in this new world that we've come into. Maybe we need a monarch who will champion things like our disadvantaged young people in the way that the Duke of Edinburgh did. Yeah, I can see that. I'm going to ask you, who knighted you? It was Prince William. Going back to your thing about monarchy, because I've always been perceived as, as being on the left throughout my adult life, mm. a lot of people categorised me as a, a class traitor. Apart from anything else, the Blair government set up this committee of people who would scrutinise all the suggested recipients of the, the various national honours and say which ones should get them and which ones shouldn't. So it isn't actually a royal choice anymore. But to be quite honest, every 
country has this method of recognising people who have made some contribution to their society and honouring them in some way. And to have been chosen to be one of those people was just about the most flattering thing that has ever happened to me in my whole life. Mm. Uh, Miriam Margulies said to me, we were really surprised when you were made a knight because you didn't really deserve it, did you? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Miriam. (laughs) It was such an honour. But actually you did deserve it. I mean, you've been heavily involved with equity, with the Labour Party, and then also the work that you've done for charities and things like that. I think that those things should be recognised. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Um, I'm not very good at receiving flattery. Like, again, another thing, like most men, you just switch off and wait, wait for the flatterer to stop. <laughs> um, what I was going to say was, if you're going to receive an honour like that, who would be the most appropriate person to give it to the head of state? And if the head of state was getting really poorly because they had very gruelling days, then the head of state's son or grandson, you know, and and it was Prince William and it was only the second time he'd ever done it. And he came across as a really, really nice bloke and uh, and it was a lovely day. That's a wonderful thing, though, isn't it, that you can uh, sort of on your deathbed, you'll be able to say, do you know what? I met Greta Thunberg and I was knighted by the future king or maybe by then the king. Yeah. I want to take Greta Thunberg into my time capsule. Is that allowed? It is allowed. Absolutely, yes. That would be your fourth thing. So we put the table in, we put your fort in, and we put your jukebox. And Greta, I tell you why. I feel so protective towards her after having met her last night. I, I hadn't met her before. I was sent her her new book, which is an absolute stonker. It's called The Climate Book, and I thought it was absolutely wonderful. It's kind of been collated by her, and she's she's written pieces um, every 30 or 40 pages or so. Um, there's a lot of very, very clever people writing in a very accessible way about various aspects of the of the climate. So she was going to be on the one show promoting that, and I was on promoting Museum of Time. And, of course, I knew all about her, uh, or at least I thought I did. Mm. So uh, I was invited into her dressing room, and she was was the sweetest person that you could possibly meet. Someone today said to me, what was she like? And I said, well, it was like meeting someone's very polite, very bright daughter. Mm. What a nice person. How proud your mum and dad must be of you. That's how it felt. And she is so intelligent, which she wears incredibly lightly, so committed to her cause, but she doesn't, like, go around in the dressing room saying, make the world better. (laughs) Yeah, she wants to play with my dog, you know. Um, And when we were on, she was... Very, very good. She knew how to promote her book. She knew how to be honest. Um, But then I put a picture of her and me on Instagram. And most people thought that she was absolutely wonderful and made it clear. There was a minority who would carry such a hatred for her, a hatred out of all proportion to anything she could possibly be. And my heart bleeds for her Mm. that... Someone could care about something so much. Someone could care about something, even if you don't agree with her, is about nurture and looking after a valuable thing, which happens to be our planet. 
Yes, there is nothing harmful in anything she's saying at all, apart from the fact that it may mean that we have to change the way we do things. But we will anyway, we'll just be forced to. But I thought that the great thing she said last night on that programme was that she has the confidence to do that and she feels safe doing it because she knows all the people who are around her and are supporting her. Yeah. Sure, she said... She said so many things to me which, which, which really chime with me. I mean, I would say meeting her is equivalent to, to meeting... Uh, I'm sure it will be regarded this way, as I say, on your deathbed saying this, but I think it's equivalent to meeting Mandela. Yeah, I think you're right. Funny thing she said to me, she said, <clears throat> I think climate change is really, really the wrong thing to say. She said, climate's just like about warm, isn't it? Climate's your holiday. Change is like a slow thing. That you're, be- but you're you're going to be able to control because it's slow. She said, "We're not going through climate change at all. We're going through global meltdown." Wow! Again, that demonstrates what an extraordinary person she is. In as much as she clearly thinks that we're right on the cusp of something, or in fact, in the middle of something really disastrous. It may even be too late, and yet she's still fighting for it. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Another thing that she said about precisely that, she said, a lot of people are going to find the whole subject just too big and too depressing and, frankly, too boring. And also they're going to think, well, there's nothing I can do about it anyway. She said, there is one thing that you can do, and it's the most important thing. Educate yourself. Once you've educated yourself, you'll know what you can do and you know what you're capable of and you'll know what you want to do. Mm-hmm. Educate yourself, which I think is probably the cleverest pitch for your new book I've ever heard in the whole of my life. <laughs> and one good way of doing it is reading my book. Yes, that's very clever. But, I mean, it shows what an extraordinary person it is that you had the opportunity last night to go on and do what, you know, you were being, in a way, paid to do, which is promote your television programme. And you spent most of the programme talking about how wonderful her book was. Yeah, well, it was. Mm. It was. You don't get paid, by the way, for doing <laughs> They send a posh car to your door and there's a posh car waiting when you come out. So, you know, you can drink their free water in the back of the car and sometimes there's mint. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, what a fantastic thing to put into. It may be the best thing that anybody's put in, I think, Greta Thunberg, because um, she represents a movement, I think, that we're all going to have to accept and all become part of. Otherwise, we're in deep trouble. Yeah, I agree with you. Yes, there are things to be optimistic about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have to say, I think we should, and I'm not saying this in a party political way, I'm saying it in a civil way. However critical many of us might have been about Boris Johnson, he was aware, because his wife was aware, how fundamentally important the environment was. And I think that focus has completely disappeared now that he's gone from this government. They have, for instance, the environment minister is no longer a cabinet minister, Vumpf. That's gone. Mm. He's also banned on land wind farms at the same time. And although I think there's only a limited use for them, there are places where they can, could be put in uh, without being uh, an obscenity, as it were. Yeah, well, uh, I think some of them are quite beautiful. The idea of growth, we're going to just put money into growth all the time and you sort of go, well, why not grow an industry that will be useful to us? Yeah, good growth is a very dangerous notion, I think, particularly now. Mm. If you, if you want to grow, yeah, fine, but you've got to look at the environmental costs first, the wider environmental costs first. Yeah, all our life, everybody's talked about growth, 
we must be getting to the point where we're starting to see that actually it's not necessary. It's so difficult, isn't it? Because what we're talking about is sustainability. But for an awful lot of people, the word sustainability is something that's only used by bleeding heart liberals. Yeah. It's very difficult to, to find a vocabulary which everyone is happy to buy into, which is actually progressive. One of the points in Greta's book, maybe I could have the book as well as Greta, but mm. if I'm not really. But, but one of the things that she says is a lot of people say that the best thing that we could do is to control population. She said, no, it's not that, because most people, by accident rather than design, actually live sustainably. It's just 7% of the population live so unsustainably that it's that that tips the balance. And all you need to do is to make sure that everybody lives sustainably, and then the problem of population is no longer a problem. Mm. But I think, um, not that I've had to test it yet, but I think I am going to take on board her idea of not flying. If I can go on a train or if I can get there another way by boat or something, I will. I actually flew so much in the mid-20-teens, if there is such a concept, um, that I ended up with a gold frequent flyer card. Mm. With a gold frequent flyer card, you get more free flights and you get more upgrades and you get nicer food and it occurs to me that one of the biggest obscenities about flying now, and I certainly wouldn't make the programs that I did anymore, which involved that amount of flying, one of the biggest obscenities is the frequent flyer card. I think the more you fly, the more you should have to pay. That's a very good point, yeah. That way, you would encourage businesses to become more cost-effective by making people fly less. And hopefully, it would encourage ordinary people to fly in a more strategic way. That's probably the problem with people like you and I who, you know, have got a few bob, is that we don't fly strategically. We just hop on the plane to Alicante, don't we? It's easy. Yeah, we go off somewhere, do a bit of filming, come back again. I know. Um, just to, to crowbar us back into our time capsule, there's a red wine called Chateau Talbot, and it was the first posh wine that I ever had. And as I got older, I discovered that I was allergic to red wine. I, uh, I think it happens to a lot of people that their allergies come on late. Mm. And I can't drink Chateau Talbot now, but in my time capsule, if somebody could invent me a Chateau Talbert that uh, doesn't make you wheezy, I'd like to take that. Yes. Tragic. Really tragic. I mean, you talk about the environment being destroyed, but not being able to drink red wine. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Let's get things into perspective, Tony. Tragic. So, in fact, I do ask people to put one thing in that they'd like to put in and forget about from their life. I lost my virginity a little bit later than the majority of my compadres at drama school. <laughs> I tried to lose it, and I think every boy of my age carried a contraceptive around in his wallet from about the age of 13, because who knows, that might be the day when the magic act occurred. And you'd eventually have to throw that what, what wallet away because it looked like every other wallet except it had this strange kind of ring shape in the leather, which was a dead giveaway. <laughs> but well, I left drama school, and one of the first jobs I did was at Lincoln Rep. And there was a coffee bar next door, 
And I met this exquisitely beautiful young woman. And at the time, I'd got out of thinking I had to talk about myself if uh, if I was going to cop off. <laughs> I thought the best way was to be so ironic with her that I was virtually rude. Mm. I think an awful lot of boys from Oxford and Cambridge <laughs> think that well into their 20s. <laughs> I was about 21. And it was like I was just kind of cursory and rude with her all the time. I was in that coffee bar trying to be witty. And then on the first night, the first night went awfully, awfully well. And drink was had on the stage and her eyes wide open and appealing and said, Tony, I've been ever so silly. I locked my key in my house. Could I stay with you tonight? And I said, no. (laughs) And I don't know why. It was a panic brought about by awe. And the fact that something I wanted more than anything in the world appeared to be in such close proximity. Yeah. I would, that whole moment, I would like in a box, lead sealed, put into my time capsule in a room that I didn't have the key to. Very good. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I wonder how many men have experienced that. Isn't it strange that we're all depicted as give me the chance and I'm straight in there. But actually, I think that that's almost a shared experience of most men, that given the chance, when it first comes along like that, you go, oh, my God, oh, my God, I've been thinking about this a lot and uh, I'm not sure, will I be any good? Can I do it? (laughs) Yes, maybe we set up no anonymous. Everyone who has gone through an experience... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you think of yourself as that age and you think, ah, oh, godlike almost, but no, really not. <laughs> so really not. Yeah. <laughs> Tony, I'm going to let you get on with your life and how lovely to talk to you and how lovely to see you after all this time. And you, mate. It was so nice to talk to you. Talk to you in another 40 years. <laughs> yes, we'll be there. You have been listening to My Time Capsule, with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Sir Tony Robinson. Do take a look at his new programme, The History of Us. I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you for listening, and I have to say, that was not a bad way to start off the new year, was it? And our 250th episode to boot. If you had fun, then please do subscribe, and then you can rate the show. Five stars is easiest, and maybe even review it, which is not so easy, but greatly appreciated. Both My Time Capsule and I are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, and we do our best to engage with everyone who contacts us on there. So feel free to follow us and ask any question, or suggest a future possible guest you'd like to hear on My Time Capsule. That's always helpful for us, especially if you've got their telephone number. If you like the theme tune, it's available on Spotify and was written by Pass the Peas Music. This cast-off production was produced for Acast by John Fenton Stevens. Right, I'll be back with plenty more guests soon. And if you're a subscriber, you won't have to search for them. They'll be sent to your podcast app and be there waiting for you if and when you choose to listen to them. Or delete them. It's up to you. In the meantime, here's to a prosperous and happy new year for everyone. And remember, it's not as easy as you think to keep your new year's resolution. So don't be disappointed if you let yourself down. The important thing is to try. I mean, take mine this year. I read an article whilst waiting in the doctor's surgery on the dangers of eating rich food and drinking too much alcohol. I was terrible, the things they were saying. I mean, I was so horrified. I promised myself that this year I'm going to completely give up reading. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.